I do think that with time, anyone can become a great talent evaluator. But at the same time, I think that so many people who think that they are great talent evaluators aren't. They've maybe gotten good at pattern matching, and sometimes pattern matching can be quite helpful. Sometimes it can be quite harmful, though, because every person is an individual. Just because two people worked at Google doesn't mean they're of the same quality, or just because two people went to Harvard doesn't mean that they're both brilliant. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm super excited to be joined by Nadia Singer, Chief People Officer at Figma. Nadia first joined Figma in early 2020 as a Director of Talent but has quickly scaled her career and responsibilities alongside Figma's own growth. Besides creating one of the most ubiquitous products used in the design world, Figma is also known for its radically transparent, bottoms-up work culture. Yet culture cannot exist without great people inside a company adding to it and practicing it each day. Nadia joins us to chat about these two key aspects of a chief people officer's role finding the best talent, and scaling culture alongside a company's growth. In our conversation, Nadia pulls back the curtain on Figma's approach to interviewing and shares the advice she gives her own recruiters on how to recognize when the company is a right fit for the candidate, not just the other way around. She dives deep into what makes someone a truly remarkable talent evaluator and shares her theory on why many recruiters end up leaning on pattern matching, a practice she says ultimately ends up harming everyone involved in the recruiting process. We also get into her favorite interview questions to ask a candidate, mistakes she made early on in her career when she was handling 10 interviews a day, and how there are no right answers to an interview question. We end with a conversation about how Figma practices, and scales a culture of radical transparency. From sharing slide decks from board meetings as soon as they happen, to encouraging individuals on teams to practice over communication. Nadia's own career journey from a recruiter to the C-suite is a story of inner grit, and I'm excited to share that with all of you now. And now, my conversation with Nadia. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I thought a fun place to start might be kind of when you zoom all the way out, what do you think Figma does differently that attracts folks to the company or to your culture? There are so many things, so it's hard to just pick one, but I think we have just a really unique culture and it really starts with, I would say, our community and the fact that we are this SaaS product that has such a strong core of users. And when you are going through the process with us in an interview or when you're already working here, 
you feel that every day and it really gives fuel to working here. So I would say that's one of the unique things about us from the outside, for sure. How does that kind of tangibly express itself? Or let's say I'm an engineering manager and I'm talking to Figma and three other, at least from the outside companies that people think are amazing. And I'm going through that process or I'm, I'm interacting with you all. How does it express itself? We always say that our interview process is not just about us interviewing you, but it's about you interviewing us. And when you ask your interviewer, what do you love about working at Figma or why do you work at Figma? Almost every single person, I would say they talk about obviously the work that they get to do. They talk about the people that they get to work with, but then they start talking about the community and the product. And it's such a natural manifestation. And anybody that does their diligence, if they talk to a designer, if they talk to a friend, they get this like unbridled love. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, this happened for me when I was interviewing. All of my designer friends were like, I couldn't work without Figma. And it's such a huge testament to the product that we're building. When you have people in their professional space say they couldn't do their job without the thing that you're building. How do you sell a candidate? I'm sure you can kind of bucket people, right? There's a, a group of candidates that you're excited about that out of the gate, this is their dream company. They've been a member of your community. They're super passionate. They're not even really considering anything else. Then you have another group that for whatever reason, they're not passionate about design. The culture isn't right. And they kind of self-select out. But there's always this group of like insanely talented people who either aren't sure whether they want to leave their great current job or they have four other offers from equally as exciting companies, just different dimensions. How do you go about building this relationship around the offer? What are your strategies and tactics to close the person? Yeah, well, I think you get it right in that you can bucket people in these like really large buckets. But then at the end of the day, what makes the best recruiter is knowing that every person is such an individual. And this is where like you can't apply a framework to closing a candidate because every person has a different set of needs, a different set of desires, a different set of wants. And so as a recruiter, as a hiring manager, as a CEO, no matter what your role is in the process, how are you digging in with that candidate to really understand what it is that they're looking for? And that starts with the very first conversation. What matters to them? What drives them? You have to start asking those questions and then reiterating that throughout the process. If someone says to you, I want to work on the hardest technical challenges, well, great. You then know that that is what your conversation should be around throughout your entire recruiting process from the very first call to the very last call. And you can only sell what is true to your company. I always ask a lot of our new hires, did we lie to you? Is like anything that we told you in your interview process not true now that you're here? Because if what you're selling isn't true, someone will self-select out pretty quickly. And so it comes back to every candidate being an individual and not applying the one size fits all, but rather what drives you, what motivates you, and how can we match those things? Do you ask those specific questions explicitly or 
back when you were doing maybe a lot more interviewing yourself, are there ways you're getting at that or other questions you're asking to start to build this picture or portrait of the candidate and what drives them? It has been a minute since I've been in the trenches of interviewing, you know, 10 candidates a day. But, you know, sometimes it is explicit and sometimes it is implicit. I can't believe I'm going to share one of my favorite interview questions. But one of my favorite interview questions is, as you think about what's next for you and your journey and the next opportunity that you're looking for, what's something that you hope is the same and what's something that you hope is different about the next place, the next opportunity, the next culture? That really starts to tell me both about how much the candidate has self-reflected and what they actually are looking for and, and do they know what they're looking for? Are they running away from something? Are they running towards something? Either one is okay as long as they know. And then it helps me understand, are the things that they're telling me things that Figma can offer? I have a long list of interview questions, but that's one that I think always tells me so much about a candidate and whether or not there's going to be a potential match. And so once you start to build this portrait of the candidate, can you give some examples of how you then use that information in the nurturing and sales and closing process? It's just about building that relationship. I always used to say when I was doing this that this is only going to work if what's best for you is actually the company and making sure that those things really align and that what you're telling a candidate is truthful about what their experience might be. For me, it was always about being super honest and open and transparent with every single candidate and never using their words against them, but always coming back to, hey, you had mentioned that this was really important to you. And now you're saying this other thing. Let's talk about it. Let's unpack it so that you can really get to what they're thinking and what they're feeling. On that point, what are your thoughts on stated versus revealed preferences? You know, in all the hiring you've done in your career, do you think most people actually know what they want and the conditions that enable them to do their very best work? Or there's some notion of, of revealed preferences, right? Like the classic Netflix thing. You ask somebody, what do you like on Netflix? And they tell you these documentaries, and then you look at their viewing history and it's too hot to handle or, or whatever else. Have you been in my Netflix history, Brett? <laughs> I think it's a combination. I think people think they know what they want. And then typically as they start in a process, more unfolds for them. A lot of people that I talk to haven't done job searches in a few years. And so when they enter the job search, they think that they are looking for one thing. And a lot of times it's like, I've stopped learning at my company. And so they're looking for a new learning opportunity. But then when you start talking with them and they start interviewing, it actually starts to turn out that it's not that they're not learning at that environment. It's that they're not learning what they wanted to, or it's that they don't have the freedom to operate and execute on their own or any number of other things. And so I always try to think about when I'm talking to candidates, how can I help show them, 
a little bit more of what they might be looking for and how Figma could be the place for them to find those things for candidates who feel like they don't have ownership. Well, one of our values is run with it. And that gives people the ability to hopefully have a little bit more freedom in making decisions and executing on their work and moving quickly. And that's when people tell me like, I'm not learning anymore. When you start to unpack it, it has more to do with that than truly not learning anything. When you think about the role of an interviewer, you know, you're wearing a few hats. One is this theme that we're talking about, which is how do you get someone that you think would be amazing to join your company? That's like a discrete sort of set of skills. The other obviously big one is this role of talent evaluator. And I think that's a highly underexplored topic. Who makes for great interviewers? Can anyone be a great interviewer? When you think about that talent evaluator hat, what's the interplay between someone's own taste and just intuitive judgment about people versus things that are teachable or frameworks or they can watch someone else interview and they can learn how to be excellent? What kind of comes to mind for you in this bucket of talent evaluation? It's both. I do think that with time, anyone can become a great talent evaluator. But at the same time, I think that so many people who think that they are great talent evaluators aren't. They've maybe gotten good at pattern matching. And sometimes pattern matching can be quite helpful. Sometimes it can be quite harmful, though, because every person is an individual Just because two people worked at Google doesn't mean they're of the same quality or just because two people went to Harvard doesn't mean that they're both brilliant because your company is unique and in a moment in time. And so when I think about myself and I always go into an interview, first, you got to check your biases because every single person has them. I believe deeply in structured interviewing and making sure that you're asking the same questions to the people interviewing for the same role so that you're giving them the same experience and same opportunity. Obviously, I ask deep follow-up questions depending on on the answers that I get from them, but always starting with the same structure. And I think that that's the beginning of being a good interviewer. Then comes just time of doing and understanding that it's not just about what people say, but how they say it or how they approach the problem. It's not just about getting the right answer. Sometimes there is no right answer, but how did they get there? How did they get to the solution that they got to? I think these are the things that you can actually really learn and observe as you do interview training. I believe deeply in interview training and giving everyone the basics of starting that off and shadowing and reverse shadowing. But interviewing as much as we want it to is not a perfect science. You could be the best interviewer, but you're going to have false positives and you're going to have false negatives. And that is the reality of humans. There's no perfect prediction model. You know, someone could get all strong yeses and then start. And for a number of reasons, it ends up not working out. Or you could pass on someone who goes on to be the next founder of, of XYZ company. Like we've heard all of the stories of people being passed on and then going on to start their own companies and having huge success. It doesn't mean that they were bad. It means that they weren't 
right for your company at that time, or maybe that your interview did have a flaw in it. And so it's about learning over time and adjusting your interview process as you scale and need different things for your company. You mentioned something as you were sharing there that I thought was super interesting, which is how does an individual become a better talent evaluator? Could you expand on that a little bit? Like, let's say you have an engineering manager who's starting to join interview loops, for example. They have really good taste and they want to be a top 1% interviewer and not just go through the motions and whatever. And they want to be truly excellent. What practice should they be doing? What are the rituals they should be executing to inch their way towards that? Well, one thing I would say is taste, depending on how you define it, is subjective. So having good taste might not actually make you a good interviewer and a good talent evaluator. But I would say there's a few things. There are people that you do know are good talent magnets and talent evaluators. And you can see that in the success of the people that they have hired. And so I would always start with those people and I would ask them, you know, the questions. What are you asking? How are you asking? What are you looking for in your responses? What's a good response? What's a bad response? I would then think about the questions that you're asking themselves and how do they actually tie back to the job? I think part of what is so broken about talent evaluation is that we're not asking the right questions. We're asking things that have nothing to do with what does true success look like on the job. And when I think about engineering specifically, we're really starting to understand and debunk all of these leap code type questions and interviews that aren't actually what a real engineering job looks like. And so I'd really hone in on your questions and think about what makes a great engineer and are your questions getting at the root of that. And then I would say to throw a lot out the window of what you think you know or believe to be true because talent evaluation, and this is where, you know, I would say pattern matching can be really harmful because of what I said earlier, which I think is that talent evaluation is broken. That means that historically when we've said that engineers from FANG companies are great, well, if you think that one of those companies is fundamentally flawed in how they're evaluating talent, then just because someone worked there doesn't actually mean that they're good. Everybody always talks about We want to hire the best. Well, of course, nobody wants to hire the worst. But what does the best mean for your company? What do we need at that point in time? And then go build your interview around that. You touched on this a second ago, but what makes a great interview question? There's a lot of components and it's different for different things. There's situational questions. There's behavioral questions. It depends on what you're trying to understand. So first you have to define the competency that you're evaluating. If you are evaluating someone's ability to collaborate with others, especially when they might disagree, then you start to break it down and think about the components of that question that get you an open-ended answer from someone about how they've collaborated, how they've worked, When it does come to that topic in particular, one of my favorite questions to ask people is, tell me about the last project that you worked on with a group 
that you didn't get over the finish line, that didn't come to completion the way that you thought it would. And what I'm really trying to understand there is not only how they worked with the group, but how was the decision made to not ship the project or ship the product? And thinking about how you made that decision, how you came to the conclusion, how you worked with others, were you happy with the outcome? Were you better about the decision? All of these things help you identify whether someone might be a strong collaborator. That's a huge part for us and at Figma of values questions and tying it back to, again, those competencies that you have, the values that you have of how you want people to operate and work, you start to build questions around those skills. Do you interview for self-awareness? Yes. How do you do that? There's a lot of different ways. If I were to ask your coworkers about working with you, what would they say? What are you really good at? What are your growth areas? You can start to sense how someone talks about themselves and what they're good at. And then you have the opportunity if your company does reference checks, which Figma does, you then have the opportunity to actually check on that and see are the things that someone is saying about themselves that their coworkers would say, is that what their coworkers actually say about them? I always ask people, what are they hoping to learn? What can they get better at? And you get a sense, and this is where practice of evaluating talent comes in, you can get a sense if someone has actually given deep thought to it or if it's the first time that they're ever really thinking about what they could be better at or what a growth area is for them. Self-awareness is such an important skill and an important area for people, especially in hyper-growth environments, to have so that they can grow. When you think about your own growth in kind of the last chapter of your career as an interviewer, all the way back to all the the in-the-trenches recruiting work that you did, when you looked at the mistakes that you've made, maybe type one or type two errors, right? Error type one would be you hire somebody and they weren't successful in the constraints of the culture. And type two is maybe you passed on somebody who ended up being great. That's probably harder because maybe they were great at another company. It wouldn't have been great for you. But are there big things that you've changed about what you look for or how you evaluate talent based on those kind of mistakes you've made along the way? My style has changed for sure. I've been doing this a long time. When I first started out, I stuck to my script because I didn't have comfort in what I was doing. I probably believed in my early days that there was a right answer and a wrong answer to things. But now I think I'm so much more focused on open-ended questions versus very black and white questions. Hearing about how do people approach problems, how do people talk about the work that they're doing gives me so much more insight than where you have already a predetermined answer in your mind. So that would probably be the biggest shift for me. I've been able to embrace ambiguity with a bit more confidence after realizing my own journey has been so complex and and interesting and taken turns in my career. And so when I think about interviewing other people, there isn't a set of specific answers that I'm looking for, but rather the reflection, the self-awareness, the ability to grow is kind of where I now focus a lot of my efforts. 
How does that interview style fit in with your worldview about structured interviews? Because my guess is it dovetails in some way, but you're not just question, answer, question, answer. And I think a lot of people maybe, maybe when they think structured interviews, they think of a mechanical workflow that they're going through. So I typically give myself in a 30-minute interview the three questions that I want to ask every candidate. But with each of those questions comes the follow-up and what in interviewing is called tunneling. And I think that's what actually ends up making a great talent evaluator and a great interviewer is your ability to stay structured, but tunnel into what the person is saying to get more information. Because when you ask a question, you get the first response. It's just like what makes a great podcast interviewer. You've asked me a series of follow-up questions to the things that I've said instead of Brett asks a question, Nadia answers, Brett moves to the next question. It's the tunneling and the tunneling gives more information. And so it's important that candidates get the same opportunity to put forth their work and put forth their answers. And so, like I said, I I always tried those three core questions and then my follow-ups and my tunneling based on what the person has said, but always tied back to what's the competency or the value or the behavior that I am responsible for evaluating. And so if I'm responsible and each of our interviewers is generally responsible for competency, and that's where the structure really comes in, it always comes back to that for me. And so if I'm in charge of collaboration, my follow-up questions dig in more on collaboration. I always tie it back to that original competency, though. Shifting back to this topic of culture, I'm really interested to learn more about how you think culture evolves as a business scales and matures. I think a lot of people have explored the topic of what culture is, what culture isn't, maybe even hiring for culture and and things like that. But there's this interesting sort of thing that happens when a company scales and, and scales particularly quickly as Figma has. I'm interested to kind of have you explore the topic of culture as a business scales. And if you're nurturing or developing culture through scale, in a really effective way, maybe what that looks like or how you think about it? Culture is not a static thing, and it never was. Culture is always evolving. Even the definition of culture is evolving. And I think that's where we have to debug a little bit of like, well, what do you even mean when you say culture? But the way that I've thought about it, and you know, I think I've been at Figma now for almost three years, and There's a lot that is the same, but there's so much that is obviously different. And we talk a lot about on the people team, what got you here won't get you there. And so you have to think about what are the core tenets of the culture that you want to keep? What are the things that need to evolve? And maybe what are the things that just don't make sense anymore because they'll no longer make you successful. So that's how I think about it. On that topic of what you want to keep and what you want to evolve, do you do that in some sort of formal exercise from time to time or or you mean it more implicitly? Both. For instance, at Figma, we have something called Maker Week twice a year, which is a week of uninterrupted 
meeting-free exploration time with the only goal of build something that will make Figma better. Many, many of our products and features have come out of Maker Weeks. It's hard. It is hard when you are moving as fast as we are as a business to stop, to say, we're not doing interviews for a week. We're not doing meetings for a week. We're taking a break from our day-to-day to explore, to have fun, to tinker. We constantly check in on, are we going to keep doing this? And the answer is yes. It is so core to our culture. And maybe there will be a point that it has to evolve from what it used to be or what it is today. But for now, we are absolutely keeping it just the way that it is. So it is implicit and an explicit conversation. Can you give more examples in the context of Figma in this sort of umbrella of culture? Maybe a few of the things that you've been really intentional about keeping, like the example you just gave, and maybe what are some examples of where you decided to evolve and change and what that actually looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we have evolved over time is something called Three Things. Three Things was introduced long before I started at Figma and was an opportunity for a Figmate to get in front of the company and talk about the three things that make them who they are. And it's not, I like dogs and I play basketball. It's really, these are the things that shaped me to make me me, the things that make me who I am. And they're deeply personal. Sometimes they're funny and sometimes they make you cry, but it was such an unbelievable window into who your teammates were. And so when I started in 2020, I joined the company remotely because it was two weeks after the pandemic started. And it was something that we were still doing, albeit remotely over Zoom. And I was able to see about four or five, three things in my time, maybe a few more. And we realized that what made it so powerful and this intimacy was something that we couldn't keep given the pace that the company was growing at. And we couldn't give every single person the opportunity to do it anymore. And so we've evolved it and it's evolved pretty naturally, actually. So it's not something that we do at the company level anymore, but is something that many teams do at the team level in their more intimate environments that our offices do. So I know that the New York hub that we have when leaders or when folks visit, they love to have people present their three things. And so it's still a part of Figma and still something that we talk about a lot, but isn't done the exact same way as when it started. On this theme of rituals, what are the other things that you might be able to share that you've noticed? It doesn't necessarily even have to be cultural. It could be meetings, the way the company operates, the way that you run your team in the sphere of people and talent. Are there other rituals that you think have had a surprisingly positive impact on the company? I think our level of transparency, which starts at the top, starts with Dylan, but is something that had an incredibly positive impact. And what I mean when I think about our transparency, we have a board meeting. And then right after that board meeting, we present most of the content from that board meeting to the entire company. And I say most because it's really hard to take a three-hour board meeting and condense it into a 60-minute all-hands. So it's rapid fire. And a lot of the content has already been shared with the company in prior meetings anyways. 
But we talk so openly about our metrics. We talk so openly about what is going well, what's not. Like I said, it starts with Dylan, but it's also how I operate with my team. And I think a lot about how we can over-communicate and sharing when sometimes no update is still an update. And so telling people, hey, this is top of mind. It's something we're thinking about, but we don't have an answer yet. And really making sure that people know where things stand gives a sense of security, builds trust. I would say that is really core for us. On this topic of transparency, you just sort of mentioned a little bit about this, but why do you think it's so valuable? I think I'll speak for me personally, because I think that I probably operate with a level of candor and openness with my team that really works for me and it's authentic to me. So that's why I do it. But I think it breeds trust. I think that when you can inform people of what's going on, it helps them understand the circumstances in which we're trying to operate. If you tell them when you don't have the answer, it shows that level of humility and that growth mindset of, we're going to figure this out together. I think about the people landscape in 2023, and we're all operating in a world in which we could have never imagined. And so when you are able to be transparent about that, when you're able to be open, when you're able to be honest, I think you get more out of yourself and out of the people around you to solve, to think through, and to work together. How do you figure out the line of the things that you aren't willing to be transparent about? So for example, I mean, I don't know how you do this, but when you exit someone from the company, I assume you don't send an all-company email that says the reasons they were fired. I mean, maybe you do. That would be one form of transparency. If you're thinking about buying a company or you're in you're in a transaction to buy a company, you may not tell the whole company. I'm sure there's lots of examples. And so how do you figure out where the line is? The easy way is like there's a legal line typically and a confidentiality line. And you have to figure out, well, what's the risk of something being made public? So I always think about the decisions that I make and what I share. And I think to myself, okay, if I share this with my team and it leaks to a different team or if it leaks externally or if it leaks to the press, how comfortable are we with that? Are we comfortable with it? Can we defend it? And so that's one way. But the other that I think a lot about is there's also a line with transparency that can be harmful, which is not everybody does need to know everything. And some things actually just can make people spin out or slow them down. And so I think about it as well of like, is this transparency actually helping someone understand and achieve and move faster and unblock them? Or is it possibly going to cause negative effects? Those are two ways that I think about how open I want to be. On this last note, are there things you've observed that people tend to get wrong on this topic of transparency? or being more transparent as a company? I think it's it probably more towards the last point of telling everybody everything all the time. Like sometimes there's too much information. 
think we've all are suffering a little bit from like information overload. And so what is the impact of sharing the information? And so I think where people can maybe get it wrong is where sharing something then has that negative impact of either slowing someone down or of creating a roadblock that maybe didn't exist for them. Some people believe in like, everybody should have all information. But if you have all information all the time and you're just spending time catching up on Slack and catching up on email and just absorbing, 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 you don't have time to do the things that you need to be doing. So I think that's where people can get it wrong. So taking a little turn, something we haven't yet talked about is the idea of company culture versus team culture. You mentioned it a little bit when you were explaining how transparency shows up in your org and how it is connected with your own authenticity and the way that you think about authenticity and openness. And so is that something you spend time thinking about as someone focused on culture, the role of the global culture at the company versus the culture of an engineering team or maybe a five-person pod of engineers that are working on a specific feature release and how that all fits together? Absolutely. So there's not just the global culture, but there's the team culture, there's the regional culture. There's so many different layers of how culture shows up, but I think it comes back to our values as being the umbrella and the North Star for all of our teams. So when we interview, regardless of role, we're looking again for that Figma value alignment rather than just team. But of course, teams have autonomy and freedom and that just naturally is created, but it still all plugs back into our North Star and our values. And so you see teams do have different rituals. They celebrate in their own way. They problem solve in their own way. They do performance review calibrations, maybe with different tooling. And so London has their rituals that they do that, you know, San Francisco doesn't do. And Tokyo will have its own set of rituals and its own set of culture, but all feeding into this umbrella and North Star of Figma's company values. But absolutely, you have to allow for freedom and autonomy for teams to develop their own identity. Do you nurture that or encourage that in some specific way? Yes and no. This is where I think in some ways bottoms up culture really comes in to play and you have to let things build and then they get to a certain point and we certainly then nurture. And so when I think about our team in London and the teams in EMEA, when it started, it was bottoms up, building culture, aligning to our values. But then over time, we brought in people to focus on what is that experience for our employees and how is that experience going to be slightly different than the experience that San Francisco employees have. There are the core experiences that we want to be the same, but then we allow for local teams, individual teams to build on their own. Most of our teams have their own team swag. And that's such a simple thing, but it is their identity. And so if we were to say, 
no, it's only companies like that wouldn't make sense. And so we allow for that freedom to happen. And some of the team swag is the best swag out there. What is your team swag? So I haven't made team swag for the people team yet. It is on my list. It's been a very busy first six months on the job for me. But when I was leading the recruiting team, I had some sweatshirts made that on the front said one team, one dream. And on the back had hashtag ABR, which was our motto and is our motto, which is always be recruiting. Nice. I think as a people leader, there's so many different things that you could be working on at any given point in time and your team could be. And in some ways, part of your role, obviously, is about bringing amazing people into the company. And so that's something where inputs and outputs can be maybe more directly mapped. But there's all sorts of other work that you do that is potentially more diffuse or is harder to connect those inputs and outputs. And so when you think about what you want to get done or you want your team to get done at any given point in time, what's your process of figuring that out? There's a never-ending list, but I come back to a couple of tenants, which is people are not products. So there isn't one metric that I can look at or even a few to look at to simply say, this is what we should be doing. This is what we need to fix. This is where things are going right. But it's a triangulation of inputs from different parties. And so we as a team, we have feedback loops from our employees through employee experience surveys and through word of mouth and anecdotes because we're out there all the time. We have feedback loops from our managers, from our people partners. For me as the chief people officer, or if you're a CEO listening, like you're hearing a number of Things. And so there's the list that gets built that way of the stuff that might be bubbling up to the surface. And then there's the stuff that you know you have to do to operate the business. And so it's a balance of those two things and figuring out what's urgent and important and now what's important, but maybe not urgent, and what's critical to make sure that we keep operating. I thought an interesting place to wrap up our conversation is maybe on a more personal note. I think that you're one of those interesting people who have done just an amazing job growing with the company. And in this case, sort of ended in this chapter of your career as a C-level executive at probably one of the most important technology companies right now. And I'd be interested when you kind of deconstruct why you think you've had the success. And obviously, we talked a lot about humility. So maybe you can put your humility off to the side for one second. But if you really examined yourself and maybe how you behaved, what do you think is the root cause of your ability to grow so much inside of a company that was also growing at the same time? Thank you for the Figma compliment. It is an incredible place to have been and, and to be. I would rather talk about that than talk about myself, but we're going to talk about me. I think that it's a couple of things. I work really hard. And I think that I wanted to prove not only to myself, but to other people as well, that I could do this job and grow. I received feedback a very long time ago that I couldn't scale. And that was something that stuck with me. And my husband would call me a chip on your shoulder girl. And I've carried that. And 
I think part of what fuels me is proving to myself and to others that anything is possible. So I worked really hard, but I was also really honest about what I knew and what I didn't know. And Dylan and I always had really open conversations about what was going well and what wasn't so that I could improve. And I think that I also did all of it with a level of candor and fun and tried to not take myself too seriously and tried to really remember that my job is to not have all of the answers because how could you? There's also a part of it that is being in the right place at the right time. I could have never been chief people officer in 2020 when I started at Figma. But when the opportunity came up in late 2022, going through everything that we had already gone through and the steps that I took to grow and to develop as a leader meant that I was then ready and maybe ready to shake some of the imposter syndrome and say like, yes, I can absolutely do this. I think that's it. I also make fun of myself a lot, which gets me through the day. (laughs) So maybe that too. Two things that might be worth spending just a minute on before we wrap. You mentioned your own journey of growth that just tremendous effort and hard work had an outsized impact. When you think about creating a culture of hard work that also doesn't destroy people and run them into the ground, what does that look like? It's the balance of work and fun. I try to have fun while I'm working so that it doesn't feel like a grind. I am always looking to how I can bring levity to the situation and understand, but I don't think hard work means work 24-7. One, you have to work smart, but I do have balance. And I think that is really important. But there are periods of time where you might have to put your head down and say, the thing that I'm focused on right now is work and I have to get it done. And it does require amount of time and an amount of effort. But it's not sustainable, I don't think, to tell people this is normal all the time. I go to sleep very early. I get eight hours, if not more, of sleep every night because that is something that I know if I don't do, I can't work hard and I can't work smart and I can't operate. And so it's about finding the balance for yourself and setting your own boundaries as to what working hard means. God, hopefully I don't get canceled. That'd be terrible. Well, you're not that active on Twitter, right? No, I'm not. Yeah. So then it probably doesn't matter. Yeah. There we go. I think that's another really interesting one. Where does both high standards and kind of that incremental pushing come from? But I do think that that attribute in people in almost any discipline, at least certainly in building software businesses, I think the very best people, they stay unsatisfied in a specific way. Over long periods of time, they're able to push for a certain standard of excellence. It's like an inner grit. It's an unwillingness to accept anything less than. Sometimes when I'm working really hard, my mom will say to me, Nadia, your 80% is better than most people's 100%. I just don't think I'm wired to give anything less than 
100%. If I'm going to do something, I want to do it well. Does it mean I give 100% to everything all the time, all day long? No, but it means that most of the time I'm putting my all into everything that I do. Well, great place to end. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. It was a fun conversation. Thank you, Brett. I really enjoyed it. 